0: Uh, hey Mike Hello Hi, hi, that was a little delayed Oh, is it Skype again? No, I think you were delaying yourself Oh, could be We can, uh, I don't know Hi, how are you? What's up? What's the plan? Um, we're gonna do one of these Podcasts Woo! things, your... yeah How's your, how's your right. week, week Ben? How's your week?
1: It's good, it's almost over True
0: Mine's been good too um <laughs> thanks for asking. all right, I'm waking up here uh There's only one in the afternoon yeah that's that's like nine a m california time yeah, so uh yeah, long week. Are we
1: ready? We're shipping stuff soon
0: we're shipping, yeah, um you know we keep we keep teasing m x f on these podcasts. We say like hey, hey if you have m x f you should contact us for beta testing, and none of you did. But that's okay, because we found other people who are cooler. Who do like us. Yeah. Um, and they've been helping us. And thank you very much to all of them. Um, shout out to Chatter. That's what they're called, right? Yes. Yes. Shout out to them for being very helpful. Rental house in town here. Yeah. You should rent all of your things from them if you're in the filmmaking industry in San Francisco, which we know you're not because there isn't one. Um and so we're going to be adding MXF support to EditReady. Yes. What does that mean?
1: Um, it's going EditReady is going to support MXF. Ah,
0: okay. Um, why would I want that?
1: Well, I mean, the goal here is to eventually support all of the cameras going to all of the Edit systems, and so we've got MOV. Tackle. Um, if you're using ABC, HD or HDV, you can use our other product, ClipRam. And so one of the really big gaps in our product support was MXF. Um, and that is going to be resolved soon.
0: So let's, um, let's take a break here. What is MXF?
1: Um, media Exchange format? Is that right? Thanks. Media Exchange file?
0: Well, that really clears things up.
1: It's another wrapper. So you take your video and your audio and they're used, you know, some sort of codec compresses them and then you stick them into a file and the file determines where the data goes. Um, we call them wrappers around your essence and there are a number of them. Um, one of them is QuickTime. Another one is MP4. Another one is Cinema DNG, Another one is... Um, MXF and so MXF is it's it's XML based which is you know seemed like a really good idea in the late 90s um, as it did for all ideas at that point point. Um, and so yeah it you stick a bunch of frames in there and you stick a bunch of audio samples and they're really easy to get back out because they're in XML and whatever goes wrong with XML
0: yeah um so how does this differ from the format like mts
1: uh it depends on what you put in the mxf <laughs> Well, so I mean, mxf it's... is one of those uh specs by committee that can do everything um and so in some cases it's not that different than than transport streams um I think you can actually store a transport stream inside of an MXF if you want.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess the the big (coughs) difference is that uh, MXF is not a stream format. Like, you can't sort of... It's not like a worm that you can slice and dice the file however you want. There is, you know, one part of the file that has some sort of header data. um, And, you know, it's it's more like a QuickTime file in terms of how it's laid out on disk and how you can treat it um, versus an MTS file that it really is a stream format.
1: Right. I mean... And the caveats begin there. Um, at least one of the files in the packet of files which make up an MXF will be, like you said, not a stream. Right. Because you can have an MXF that doesn't have any essence in it, which points to streams. True. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a rabbit's hole. Is that a thing? Wormhole? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a clusterfuck. Um, I don't know <laughs> something. There's there's a lot of different kinds of MXFs, which is why everyone has named the different kinds so that they can only support subsets of it. Um, yeah. But we, so how do we go about supporting such a giant
0: labyrinthine? So we um, we we've looked we looked at a lot of different options here. So with our other products, with um, ClipWrap and with our QuickTime support and edit Ready, we started from a totally blank canvas. We you know for, wrote the first line of code and, and went from there in terms of how you open one of these files, how you parse it. We read specs, we reverse engineered, etc. cetera. Um, and initially, we started looking at doing that for MXF. And then we found out um, that that was basically, if we want to do that, that's like, maybe a year of full-time work for both of us. I mean... Right. And you know, the other two that we've done were a year as
1: well. True. It's not that the format's that much more difficult than the other ones. It's just those sort of clean room spec implementations take a very long time. Um,
0: And with MXF, there are so many different flavors (laughs) floating around in the wild, some of which are standardized, some of which aren't that standardized. Um, It just seemed like that was pretty impractical and it would have been just a, a nightmare. Um, and then we looked at a lot of the open source implementations. So there's uh Lib MFX, Lim, Lib, Mf, Lib- <laughs> Um, and then there's also MXF Lib with two different products, um, and different licensing attached to all of those. Um, and they didn't quite sort of fit our needs in terms of how we could integrate them into our project, um, just from a programming point of view. And so then we went and looked at the very popular FFmpeg project, which uh, most people know as the either the command line tool, FFmpeg, or they know related pro- projects like VLC. But behind the scenes, it actually contains a lot of discrete libraries for doing things like just opening files and reading samples out in their raw format, so not actually doing any decoding or anything. Uh, And that ended up being a really great fit because it gave us a a fairly high-level way to open these files and um, pull the video samples out, which could then be shimmed into our existing pipelines um, without having to really know all that much about the underlying file. But Colin, I thought
1: ClipRap and EditReady used QuickTime instead of MXF
0: because it was better. Uh, QuickTime instead of FFmpeg, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a bunch of different components of um, FFmpeg. And what we're using here is libav format, which is just responsible for reading and writing files and doesn't know anything about how to actually display video or decode audio. There's a whole separate part of ffmpeg called libavcodec which is what actually encodes and decodes files. And that's where uh all these clever programmers from around the world have reverse engineered a bunch of formats and created all their own encoders and decoders from scratch in a lot of cases. And um that's really great, um but in at least some cases their implementation doesn't match the official implementations. And so Apple has a white paper on this saying You know, open source implementations of ProRes could very well be creating video that's not spec compliant or that actually causes problems within production. And that's one of the reasons, uh, even though it's a lot more work, we have avoided using any of FFmpeg's audio and video encoding and decoding up until this point and and are continuing to. Also, I mean, you
1: know, in our testing, I mean, it's
0: possible
1: that we could have eked a lot of performance out of FFmpeg, but, you know, in our comparison tests, you know, a number of the tools we've benchmarked against are FFmpeg-based, and they're all significantly slower than us.
0: Yeah, FFmpeg traditionally, especially in the H.264 realm, does not have great multi-threading. Um, there have been a lot of forks of FFmpeg that have added much better multi-threading, but the the main FFmpeg branch doesn't do that. And I don't think even now has hardware accelerated FF, uh, H264 encode on the Mac. It does have hardware H264 decode. Oh, interesting. Um, but yeah, I, uh, y- you know, the pipeline we've got now really gives us a lot of power and control. Um, part of the issue when you start using the FFmpeg AV side is you have to use more and more of their structures, which means you're relying on them for... You, you can get into a trap where you're ending up having to rely on them for things like color space transforms and all these other components that on we can handle discreetly within our pipeline and really work on accelerating. right? Um, and, and you can very quickly end up in a space where you're like a lot of the apps in the App Store that are basically a GUI on top of FFmpeg. Right. And that's what we don't want because we want to be way better than those.
1: Right. I mean... Yeah, I mean, so this is, I mean, this gets back to some of our talks about software development and running a business. Like, you always have to decide what parts of your business you want to outsource. Um, And, you know, in a lot of ways, using a third party or an open source library is outsourcing. Um, And there are lots of very good reasons to do that. I mean, they lower development time. They, you know, it's basically like crowd. Developing your app, where you run into problems as if is if the thing that you're trying to differentiate yourself on is something you don't control. Um, so you know we picked a number of ways which we wanted to differentiate ourselves from the rest of the transcoders on the market. Um, speed being a big one, ease of use, um, not having to choose a lot of settings. Um, and these are the sort of things that like we are going to spend all of our time working on. Um, so, you know, and that seems like those are a few of the areas where we would have a huge problem going whole hog FFmpeg.
0: Right. I mean, if we wanted to build an app that <laughs> looked a lot like Edit Ready and worked a lot like Edit Ready, but, you know, didn't have the same performance and things like that, you know, using FFmpeg behind the scenes for everything. Um, you know, especially when you take into account all of the IP that we brought to Edit Ready at the start, like if you count all the time for that, um, you know we could have done it orders of magnitude faster if we just grabbed their libraries and wired it all up, but it wouldn't have given us the control to make it a really great product instead of just a functional product right
1: yeah, and I mean there's some things which seem you know the interface seems like the kind of thing that like, oh well, you can do that with any backend. But the whole point of the pipeline that we've designed is to have as little interface as possible, which means we have to be able to make intelligent decisions about what the user wants from their source media. And I think some of that would have been more difficult.
0: Yeah. Well, a good example Using any of the
1: existing libraries. I mean, we also don't use QuickTime to parse QuickTime movies. Um, Right.
0: And a good example of that is how we have to deal with um, DNX inside an MXF file with even using a FFmpeg, um, because the way their pipeline works, because it's designed around um, the model wherein you would use their pipeline for everything, um, some of the information about the DNX HD essence is only available if you actually decompress an entire frame of video, even though that data is actually in the file pre-decompression. Like there's some bit bytes you need that are in the file, but FFmpeg doesn't load those until you decode a frame, uh, which you know becomes an issue because we don't want to use them to decode a frame, and so we end up having to do all these jump through all these hoops to get to that data. Um, and, well, and also we don't want to have to decode a frame. I mean, if you're right. passing through
1: DNxHD, decoding all the frames is insanity.
0: Exactly, and so you know even in this case where we've got a limited use of a third-party framework, there are some things we've had to do to work around the limitations that someone else has imposed on us, and so that's why, you know, we had to be really careful about whether the benefits outweighed the costs. Sure. So, we basically,
1: we loaded up the, I guess, let's, yeah, let's jump off what you're just talking about. So, we loaded up um, FFmpeg, and we wrote a two or three lines of code and we hit compile and it was ready to go, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Um, And then we wrote another couple hundred lines of code to make it work. So, so yeah, so we're, we're using
1: them to parse the MXFs, but you know, what makes us different than all of the ffmpeg based tools out there, I guess is what I'm trying to get you to talk about. Um, You know, like you've spent a lot of time working on spanning. You worked a lot of time on audio sidecars and.
0: Right. I mean, yeah. Metadata. Yeah. Um, And so I think the point is just like with everything else that we as a company do, we approach uh, our tools from the perspective of someone in a post production workflow, someone who's actually going to use it. Um, So we know that people in production or in post production don't think about sort of one file in, one file out. They think more broadly about. Um, a day's shoots or you know, all the shots from a single scene or something like that and so we need to think about how that propagates throughout our workflow uh, for example most of the cameras out on the market in terms of recording MXF either um, record all of their audio in separate files from all their video or even if they don't do that they might split long recordings across multiple files just like with ABCHD. Um, or they might do both of those things. And so um, with MXF, it's not technically as critical to rejoin those files as it is with MTS because you don't risk losing a GOP, but it's still not how our users think about their footage. You go out and you shoot an interview for an hour. That's an interview. That's not 17 files. Right. The
1: clip you want is it starts when you hit record and ends when you hit record again. Right. And so, Not when the file needed to be spanned because these camera manufacturers can't seem to use a file format from the last 15 years.
0: And so we take that into account and do the right thing to recombine that stuff automatically. You don't have to like manually go in and say, concatenate this file and this file. Uh, we know how to do that. And so our pipeline takes that into account. Same with, you know, doing the right thing in terms of reading metadata out and then passing it through in ways that QuickTime applications will understand. Um, so, and, and also just, you know, understanding how to map from FFmpeg's language in terms of codecs and things into QuickTime's language. So, for example, um, something that hasn't been available on the Mac I don't think prior to us is you're going to be able to just rewrap MXF files without transcoding. Is that true? No, no one did that. At least not in a generic way. I don't think Uh, there's none of the MXF converters do rewrapping. It's possible. Some of the NLEs like Final Cut X um, are doing rewrapping, but right. When given on a camera per camera basis. Sure. But yeah, we're going to be able to let you, you know, drop in a bunch of, avc-intra mxf files from a panasonic p2 camera and hit rewrap and get out avc-intra quicktime files um and that's pretty cool and fast very fast yeah um so so
1: how are we on speed compared to the other guys
0: um. I mean, e- 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 the cool thing is, you get all the performance of edit ready. so we're still going to be the fastest thing on the market. We're still, in the case of a rewrap, just limited by the speedier hard disks, and on transcodes, we're still at least you know twice as fast as anyone else. Wow,
1: this sounds good. So, how much more uh, am I going to have to pay for?
0: Well, if you order today or tomorrow or really any time, uh, it's still just forty nine ninety nine. On just 4999 to upgrade? It's just 49.99 You don't have to pay to upgrade. Oh. If you're already an Edit ready user, you get this for free. Wow. I feel like we need to intercut like black and white scenes and me not being able to chop things. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I you know, we talked about doing a pro version and that kind of thing, but this seems like functionality a lot of people are going to want, and rather than confuse the product line, we're just giving it to everyone. Cool. So look for that real soon now. Um and we hope you all like it. Yeehaw. Yeah. Um and then, you know, you should feel free to let us know what formats you want to see next. We've got our roadmap, but uh that roadmap can be reshuffled if we hear, you know, a whole user community saying we're being underserved by the products on the market right now and uh, we'd love to see you support XYZ Format. Okay.
1: I think that covers it,
0: right? Um, I think so, yeah. I mean, um... I mean, the app's not going to look any
1: different. It's not going to act any different. It's just when you drag MXF footage on,
0: it's going to do what it used to do with a movie. Exactly, yeah. Um, the hope is that that's pretty much transparent to you, and uh, we just do the right thing. So, And we're always looking for feedback. Um, you know, the nice thing with MXF when we're targeting MXF's c- cameras, um, there aren't all that many workflows that create MXF, at least compared to the QuickTime universe. And so we've done a whole lot of testing, but we'll always be curious for feedback. Cool. Oh, I, it's a little late now, but I thought of one really good example of what makes us different. What to makes us different? Else. um resolve mxf so if you export mxf from uh davinci resolve in the dnxhd format with dnxhd video and try to open it in ffmpeg it's going to complain and not be able to get any video out of it it's going to say that there's no video in it and so any of those tools that just wrap up mxf or wrap up ffmpeg are going to fail to convert your file um but because we know that there's actually DNX in those files and we've tested with that, we were able to go in and reverse engineer what exactly is going on and deal with that within our software to say, hey, if these conditions are met, um, we can look in this specific location to find out whether this is actually DNX HD and if it is treat it as DNX HD. And that's, again, because we're thinking about the real-world use cases and not just sort of wiring up a third-party tool we can actually account for how you might actually use this tool. Cool. So I'm looking forward to getting this out to people. They're yeah, gonna, me too. Me too. I think they'll like it. I hope they do. I hope they uh, tell all their friends about it.
1: Um, so what else do we want? It's been a slow week. Well, it was a holiday. Um, oh, yeah, it was, wasn't it?
0: Yeah. So you use backblaze, right? I do. I use backblaze. Um, Everyone who's listening to us, even though they don't sponsor this podcast, you should be using some sort of online backup. Um, you should not be using a time machine or a time, whatever it's called. I guess it's called, is it called a time time capsule? I'm, you shouldn't be using one of those. You should be using an online You can backup. use one of those, but you just have to also use a. online yeah, one. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, if you want your disk thrashing a lot, you can use a time capsule. Um, so this week I had two different drives. Totaling about five terabytes, both mostly full, uh, fail. That would be really unfortunate if I didn't have backblaze. And yeah. So this is just a reminder: uh, spinning disks do fail, um, and in this case, it was you know something where it was a drive that's part of our um, BitTorrent sync, and it started having write errors, trying to sync some new data um and so i was like all right well i better you know clone what i can off that drive and so i grabbed a second drive and started cloning into that drive and it was a drive that hadn't ever really been exercised it only had a couple hundred hundred gigs on it and as i started to fill it up that one too started showing some errors and um as best i can tell these are two completely discrete events they're both drives that probably had had issues for a long time and just sort of started wigging out when i started filling them up but uh it was a good reminder it's been a while since i've had a spinning disc fail and you know of course i've had ssds as my boot drives in in my machines for four years or so um so you know, back your stuff up it's important yeah i mean it's and and even even in this case i mean losing a three terabyte drive or you know our, uh, almost four terabytes worth of stuff is going to be really unpleasant to restore from the internet, but at least it means I I can restore it. Right. Um, and you know today or this week we saw Seagate announcing six terabyte drives, I think, or was it eight terabyte? I think it was eight. Yeah. So there, you can get a lot of space on a drive now. Um, um, just make sure you have a place to put it. That's all. And RAID is not backup. Remember that. No. I do still have a Drobo in my closet. Does that work? I don't Did know. I, I haven't powered it on for years. It's yeah, still...
1: I've got. A, I'm looking right now at a uh,
0: one of those. What was it called?
1: A uh, readiness.
0: Yeah. I mean, mine was a case where it's just the, those size of drives outpaced my willingness to. Like I, yeah. I, I think I have a bunch of 500 gig or 750 gig drives in the back or in the Drobo. But. It ended up being easier just to buy one three terabyte drive.
1: Yeah, I mean, and my finding, at least you know, the sort of way I've gone recently is, if you have an offsite backup, it sucks to use it, but it's like in a lot of ways for me, it's it's a better system than RAID. Uh, you know, so like as long as you can, like RAID is really just there to allow for a drive to fail and not cause downtime. But if you don't have the kind of data that you need access to all the time, like, as far as I'm concerned, the solution to, like, wow, these spinning disks fail pretty commonly is not like, oh, let's get seven more of them. Right. <laughs> like, oh, let's load a bunch of them up. Yeah, so, I mean, it's like one, as far as I'm concerned, the failure rates on one 8-terabyte drive, you know, are significantly less than the failure rates on... You know, five two terabyte drives or whatever it takes to do the same storage. Mm-hmm. Exactly,
0: and I also, I mean, you know, my Drobo was the first generation and and was never perfect, and actually got a little worse as they pushed out firmware updates, and was okay. always incredibly slow. Um, and I think you know, if if you had a ton of data, like you had a big media library. Um, and we're willing to spend the money for one of the fancier, I a promise the, or something. Yeah, yeah or, those are really nice. Or what are the the one that the um, it starts with an S, uh, uh, Synology, you know, that do really nice sort of network attached storage arrays uh, with um, the the feature set of a Drobo. Uh, you know, I, that's attractive for some uses. But um, if you're not in that case, I, and, and, and obviously if you're doing like production editing, you still need. Right. big fast rate arrays on thunderbolt or fiber channel but uh, for normal users i think you know an external drive if you need that is fine and then uh network backup or you know online backup for your backup is the way to go
1: yeah can i give my single biggest uh hit, like pro tip yeah for external drives don't set them up on their side <laughs> i've seen too many people have like a stack of them daisy chained with like all like dominoes yeah with the last one like perched at the edge of their desk over their garbage can yep
0: uh the saddest story there were some students who were like finishing their senior project on their external drive on its side on a desk and like it finished rendering exporting and they all stood up to celebrate and bumped the table and knocked it over and trashed the drive yeah and that's what happens of course, that was back in the days of, like, let's see externals, where you really didn't need oh, to do much to trash yeah. the drive. You just sort of needed it to exist.
1: Those were the worst. Um, so did you try Disc Warrior on your life? Um
0: I did not because I don't own a current copy. I haven't had a copy for quite a while. I actually have one.
1: They are the worst. I mean, in the com- like it's one of those things where the product was so good and the business was so bad Like I bought it last year and they were like, oh, where do you want us to send the DVD to? (laughs) And I was like, no, no, I need the thing. And they're like, oh, for 15 bucks more, you can get an electronic download, but we still need to know where to send the DVD to.
0: (laughs) And I was like, oh my God.
1: Yeah. So I bought it and they sent me a DVD so I can mail that to you if you would like.
0: Um, you know, I suspect in this case I I'm almost positive it's a uh um, just some bad sectors because of the way the failure presents itself on both these and I don't think Disk Warrior does surface scan stuff. It's really just dealing with HFS being screwed up. I don't know. It still has the like
1: the lined background. <laughs> I like think they what baked I baked it into all their assets.
0: I think what I would need in this case is uh is it Tech Tool Pro? <gasps> I think that one had a uh, surface scan tool.
1: You could check your RAM too. Yeah.
0: um or apple diagnostics oh yeah i don't think that works if you hit shift command d on boot does it still launch apple diagnostics i don't know i don't think it does that that was you know up until recently that's still like like mac os 8 that was pretty cool mm. um but yeah you know and that is an area it's interesting that you know on the pc side there's a lot of good tools for doing those sorts of drive diagnostics and they really aren't on the mac side um I don't know exactly why that is. Because um, Mac users don't like computers? I guess, you know, we don't do as much self-service, and but, yeah, it was interesting that I like I went looking for something that would just do surface scanning, and there weren't a lot of great options. Because back in the PC days, like, you know, 20 years ago, uh, drives failed a lot, and the way they would fail is you just get bad sectors fairly routinely, and you would run the included tool from microsoft called scandisk and it would go through each sector and then it would flag the bad ones and if possible relocate the data from that and then your you know disk wouldn't use that anymore and you kept using the disk because disks were expensive and they all had bad sectors um you know obviously things have gotten a lot better since then but there's still failure rates and they don't seem to be good tools on the mac for dealing with
1: that yeah i guess i was under the assumption that that was sort of handled automatically by
0: um, well, that's another area where the Mac the has controller, problems, controller, right? Um, so there's smart, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but OS 10 doesn't read smart data from external drives. Really? Yeah. Um, there's like, hacking. is that because of the protocol it goes down
1: or is that because of, it,
0: well, there are hacked kernel extensions to let you do it. So I don't oh, think so. So it is possible. I think it's just Apple has never cared. Wow. Um, cause in theory, yes, yeah, smart would at least detect that there were bad sectors. It doesn't necessarily do anything, but it at least uh can flag a disk that's starting to fail.
1: Right. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Well Apple's too busy uh, marketing things and making advertisements to actually make good kernel My- extensions, Mike, I imagine.
0: They're busy they're totally changing the way you buy products. So oh, I can starting start about Starting on this? Tuesday. we're going to do this? Starting on Tuesday, I'm going to be able to buy things by hitting my wrist against a credit card terminal. World changed. Yeah. Um. Uh, Okay. So Apple's announcing the iWatch on Tuesday. It's going to be a flexible LCD display. With wireless charging, eight gigs of RAM, and near field communication for making purchases from Visa, MasterCard, and American Express terminals. Um, and that's all we know. Man, it's got to
1: suck to be those coin guys right now, huh? I know, right? It's got to be sucked it to be Actually It actually doesn't have a a to coin. suck
0: that much because they got their money. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it sucks to be a coin customer. No,
1: they didn't those. get their money, did they? What do you mean? I did paid they- them. Did they cash our checks? Yeah. I thought they weren't. Oh, I thought that was like a thing. They weren't allowed to do that until they shipped. No, because
0: they're not Kickstarter or anything. They were just a website. Oh, yeah. Well, no, Kickstarter can do that. Kickstarter takes your money right away. Yeah. Well, but in theory, projects have to refund your money if they don't deliver. Mm. Yeah. So I'm still holding out hope for that espresso machine. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, um, I'm really interested in the NFC thing because it seems like, you know, coin is this um, very like it's a sort of hack of a solution to deal with the fact that we all carry multiple credit cards and you don't want to have to carry them, but you still want to be able to direct your purchases to different accounts. Um, Simple or bank simple is another way that people have tried to deal with this. But um, what Apple seems to be doing is using the fact that they're the world's You know the the biggest company and uh, have a ton of money, and they went out to Visa and Mastercard and Amex and said, "Here's what we want to do. What would it take for you to let us do that?" Okay, here's a check. Right. Um, So the thing that I mean, mean, honestly, like the deal is um, with all these, with Coin as well, but uh, with with NFC from Apple, like there aren't going to be because it's not going to be a universal solution. There are still going to be situations in which you need an actual credit card. Um, So you're still going to carry at least one actual credit card. It doesn't solve that issue entirely. But what would make it worth it to me and what would make it interesting is if there's actually more data exchanged between the terminal and your device than just approving the purchase. And so if you go to Target and you tap your watch on the thing, it doesn't just approve the purchase and pay, but the terminal pushes back to your device an actual list of everything you bought, and then they can start to do interesting things with that.
1: That would be great. i not
0: heard anything that that's part of the plan. Neither have I, but I I would I mean, like to think that's in the, the roadmap.
1: Like, Visa doesn't have access to that. American Express has slightly more access to that because they can at least tell you how much of your order was tip. Yeah. And how much was
0: beverages? But I mean, the the terminal knows your receipt, and right. And I guess in a lot of cases they're integrated now. Yeah,
1: I mean the deli is never going to be
0: able to do that. Sure, but I, I I just I I would really like that. I think it would let us take things like mint to the next level because you know did you go to Target and buy groceries or did you buy you know paper towels or did you buy a TV? Um, right from the credit card perspective it's just a charge at Target and it makes it a lot more work on your part if you want to actually be managing some of those things right um,
1: what you need Colin is a TV card a grocery card <laughs> that's what someone should make is a little portfolio of like you pull out your little flip book and it's got a like a card for every single category of spending <laughs> And you pull out the card you want. It's like the green one for groceries and the uh... You'd be really popular with the uh checkout clerks. Yeah. I just need to check out these things first. Okay, this is the card for that. Okay, now this stuff. Okay, here's your card. That's a good solution, man. We should kickstart that quick. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um so yeah, I guess we'll see on Tuesday. I'm excited. Um new iPhones as well. Do you think we're gonna get four K cinema displays? Ugh no. Yeah. I uh, I don't think so either, and I certainly don't think they would bother announcing it at this event, even if they did.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're gonna do. I don't know. What are they gonna do? I, don't...
0: I mean, Dell announced this week a twenty five hundred dollar monitor that is essentially a Retina version of the existing twenty seven inch Apple Cinema display because it's um, you know, double double the resolution in both directions. Hmm. That That's would... not bad. Yeah, I mean, that's about what the 30-inch monitor used to cost. Um, they would move units if they priced, if they made one. Um, yeah. I just don't know that there's enough will. I don't know that they would move enough units to be worthwhile.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the problem, I mean, you know, it seems like Apple's got this problem now where they don't want to just... I mean, everyone talks about how they're good at iterating things, but they also seem to be afraid, at least on some products, of just iterating. Yeah. You know, like, the Mac Pro was one of those things with like, they dicked around for three years to make something magical when they could have just been, you know, bumping processors. Yeah. Um, and I think they're probably doing the same thing right now with the screen. Like, what if you made a screen that didn't take up any space? <laughs> you know, and they're, like, you know, imagineering shit or something.
0: Right when we really just want them to, we buy, just want to double the fucking resolution yeah. Put the panel in the existing enclosure. Maybe put USB three on the enclosure and ship it.
1: Yeah. Did you see someone maybe, has maybe come up with a KVM for Thunderbolt?
0: Yeah. Someone has a um, a thing. It's like a box that plugs into the back of your cinema display, and then you plug the power into it, and so it like sits on top of the pl- power plug, and it has a USB three hub in it. I guess it plugs in via Thunderbolt, or I don't know what it is. But yeah, it's kind of cute.
1: Hmm. Okay. Does the monitor, the Thunderbolts don't have USB 3?
0: No, which is kind of annoying. I just bought a USB 3 drive to replace this, and so I'm going to have to uh, plug it directly into my computer.
1: Or just run it as two.
0: Yeah. That's, I mean, that's fine for media. It's a little more annoying if you're booting off it for Yosemite. Uh, sure. Um, so, oh well. So Yosemite is not coming out next week, correct? No, Yosemite looks like it's still an October release. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And it'll be interesting because they're going to ship iOS 8 with the new phones. We don't know when the new phones will ship. Um, but some of the features are directly tied to Yosemite. It'll be interesting to see how they handle that. But They'll just turn them off. Yeah. They've done that before. Yep. Um. Yeah. Okay. Seemed like you were going somewhere with that.
1: Yeah. I'm, you know, I gotta say I'm not very interested in the
0: iWatch. Yeah, I understand. You wear fancy watches. It's not even that. It's just like... I'm not... I'm
1: also not incredibly excited about the new phone. Like, I feel like a lot of these products have gotten to the point where I'm pretty happy.
0: Well, I'm I'm not particularly excited about the phone. We'll link to an article that The Verge did this week um, that I actually really liked, which is the title was "Smartphones Are About to Get Awesome Again," and it I just was, but the article had nothing to do with that. Um, sort of, it kind of did. I mean, what what they were sort of saying is that we've gotten through this period of you know megahertz wars, essentially, you know that spec war type thing, and now there's actually a lot of innovation going on in different directions and people trying different ideas that may or may not work, but there's actually, I think more interesting going on in the market now that the market's shaken out a little bit.
1: Hmm. Uh, I read that article completely different. Okay. I thought it basically was like, okay, look, all the phones have all the same features now. And so you can start buying accessories instead.
0: um, I mean, that was part of it, but I guess the point is that people are actually innovating in those accessories.
1: Yeah, I don't know. know. It seems like the holy grail of a phone is like, look, I don't have to carry all that stuff I used to have to carry. Yeah. And all these, like, add-ons are just, like, the hurdle to glomming more shit back into my pockets.
0: Well, I think one of the reasons I, even though I'm not excited about the iPhone 6, I am excited about the iWatch because... It seems, and we'll know more next Tuesday, like Apple's been working hard on this for a really long time in the same way that they did with the original iPhone. Like they have spent years and years developing the actual technology for this. It's not um, like the iPod where they're using a lot of off-the-shelf stuff and sort of innovating in software and form factor. It seems like this is a case where they're actually developing a lot of tech, and that's always interesting. Yeah.
1: Um, we'll let's see what it looks like. Yep. I guess that's, yeah. Where it's going to be an interesting decision is it comes out and it's not as cool looking as the watch I have, but it does more. Right. Then I have to decide what kind of person I am. Well, or it may come out and not be shaped like a watch at all. Yeah. I mean, if it doesn't go on my wrist, that would probably help me with adoption. <laughs>
0: Um. Yeah. Well, we'll. Because I
1: still have one pocket left. So which pocket? Could, my back left one. Yeah. Oh, okay. I could put my, or if they could get rid of my whole wallet, if they could just replace my wallet with an eye wallet. What if they start selling cargo pants? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think that's going to work either. They could do one of those like uh, things that you wear around your waist inside your pants. Like oh yeah. Traveling.
0: Yeah. That'd be good. Like a little
1: passport pouch?: Yeah. No, I think, I think if they replace the wallet with a thing, you slide your cards in to the i wallet, and then you can NFC the cards. It'll like have little magnetic strip readers in all of the little things you slide the cards into, so it'll know the number. so then when you take it out and you bloop it against the thing it knows all the cards inside of the thing. So you don't have to take them out.
0: That sounds innovative. Doesn't it? Yeah.
1: We kickstart this quick.
0: Um, What I'm saying,
1: Colin, is we have like two days left to kickstart something.
0: How far in the future do you think it is before I can use a scan of my license as a replacement for my actual license? Um, As a white
1: person, probably pretty soon.
0: Yeah, that's true. Because that's the thing that I always come back to is like oh you know coin and all this like I still have to carry my license and I still have to carry my like health insurance card and you know my that you don't need to carry yeah you do because you go to the doctor's office and they have to make copies of it oh you just email it to them
1: you keep it on your phone and it's an attachment does that work I mean if you're doctors from now
0: this works in the I haven't tried this but it should work since not in the I've done this and it did work since I mean, the people I know who scan
1: my card now, I mean, they're not photocopying it. They're scanning it, and they're sticking it in their little data system.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: I think it would work. Give it a
0: try. Yeah. We'll see. Um, Let's see. A few other just quickies. Um, Did you actually read this article from Studio Daily on cutting boyhood? I skimmed it. Okay. It sounds like... Um,
1: it looks like exactly the workflow I remember from the old the yeah. days.
0: It was, it was pretty funny to think... You know, so Boyhood, for everyone who doesn't know, Richard Linklater's film, it was shot over 12 years with an actual group of people who were aging, and it was about the process of growing up. Um, and so they started shooting it, and they shot it all on film... But they started out doing their dailies on DV cam, like telecine DV cam, because that's what you did back then. Um, and well, that's what you did if you wanted to buy an edit system for your house. Right, right. And so they were working on and they were doing um, rough cuts, you know, offlines throughout the whole process to, you know, keep keep the movie under control. And so they had to basically or they decided to keep this whole process up throughout the whole production rather than trying to switch or mix and match or do any of that. Um and then they got to the point of needing to now like get back to uh, you know a finished go to an online and found out that in that 12 year period we'd basically forgotten how to do an online of a DV cam project. Yeah. Which is just, you know, like I've been in the industry that whole time period. It's pretty crazy to think how quickly that knowledge goes away.
1: Yeah, I'm starting to think about throwing away my D V tape cleaners after reading that article.
0: I um about
1: three, I have six of them,
0: I think. About three months ago I tossed out all my D V and D V cam tape.
1: Mm, so you were gonna try to give me a deck so I could rip it before I tossed it.
0: Yeah. I don't have mm-hmm. access to free hardware the way I used to. <sighs>
1: Oh well. I have to figure out something to do with those tapes or just toss them cuz they're not getting better I'm sitting around. Yeah. Oh well. Um yeah. What was I going to say about? Oh, I wonder reading that thing I it made me wonder if they followed the um the common wisdom to not rev final cut in the middle of a project
0: <laughs> if they're still cutting on like a, <laughs> a one two five yeah
1: hey we we know people would do it yeah it's not impossible yeah we get yeah oh, a surprising number of those people so it's and you know those those old plastic Macs. those the clear plastic aged well <laughs> especially if you smoke those yeah. were nice machines. After a couple of years,
0: yeah. I wonder if you can still uh, get, can you still get an IDE disk. I don't know.
1: Man, I went through. We just moved out of the office here, and I uh, so I took it as a chance to go through all of the cabling I have <laughs> and toss stuff. Yeah. And uh, one, I have far too many FireWire 400 cables. Which I decided, like, you know what? I'm done. I don't need any FireWare 400 cables anymore. And so I took all of them and put them in my, like, giant box of e-waste. And it took me two days to need a FireWare 400 cable. (laughs) And had to, like, slurk downstairs to the garbage (laughs) and take one out. Yeah. Because I had to plug in, I had to test with uh, um, EyeSight, the original EyeSight. Wow, those are uh, cameras, camera. yeah. And they have the FireWare 400 built into it, so I had to go get one so I could do FireWare 400 to the 400 to 800 adapter to the Thunderbolt adapter.
0: You know, plugging in a FireWare 400 cable is one of the more like satisfying cable clicks. Yeah, they it's really, up there with Ethernet. Yeah, it, those are really nice. Hey, FireWare 800 doesn't have that. FireWare 800 is not too bad. It's, it's not bad, but it's not the quite The problem as- is
1: that it's square, so you can't... It's harder to, it's easy to figure out which side the little tabs are on the male side, but the female side, you know, like your computer, you know, it's always going to be a little tabby things down, but like anything that just floats, yeah, you have no idea how it's going to go in. Or like you got your, you know, you do the right thing and you got your external hard drive sitting on its side, you know, and it's hard to remember like, oh wait, is it top to the left or top to the bottom? Yeah. so. I don't know. Just saying, everyone, have an emergency. Have an earthquake preparedness kit with at least one FireWire 400 cable in it. (laughs) You you never know. And if you need one, um, I'm starting a Kickstarter. (laughs) For $1 plus postage, plus $15 shipping and handling, you can uh, have a FireWire 400 cable sent to you. But man, those original Apple ones, the like... Uh, The ones? Clear? Oh. oh, they're clear with the sheathing, so you yeah. can see the aluminum and then they're, they're like a clear sort of smoked gray plastic.
0: Yeah. I remember those. remember those.
1: Yeah. They're sort of clear smoked yellow plastic now. They did not age well.
0: You know, I will say I have in my life had very, very few Firewire cable cables die versus like USB oh, yeah. or something. Those are real. Just, best the, just the mini
1: ones. The mini ones died constantly. Yeah. Like the mini to 400. Yeah. I have like 30 of those, all of which are bad. And yet I never tossed to any of them.
0: remember trying to like pull video off of cameras with the mini and ugh, they <laughs> fall out. What a mess. Um, okay. Last story, story, and then we can move on to chatter. So I will keep talking while you figure out what your chatter is. Thank you. Um, Sony F5. And Sony F55, two very popular cameras. The F55 has the ability to shoot 4K to its internal storage in the XAVC format. The F5 does not. It can do, I think, 4K to an external recorder um, and otherwise is limited to lesser resolutions internally. And someone figured out that um, all you needed to do to make the F5 capable of storing 4K internally was modify a text file that's stored on the internal storage of the device. You don't have to go in and like... Right, you have room. to tell the camera to pretend to be a 55 and not an F5. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's... We're not talking about like Magic Lantern style hex editing of firmware files on the Canon side. This is literally like edit a text file to say you're an F55 now. Right. And first off people seemed surprised that these two cameras are the same internally, which I thought was a little strange because I thought we knew, I thought everyone knew that. No, they're very obviously the same camera, Uh, but they're paying for the better functionality.
1: Yeah. Which costs. Doesn't that come in transistors and stuff?
0: No. Oh, okay. Um, and the, I mean, it, I think some of the stories on this were a little misleading because they said like, oh, it turns your camera into an F55. No, it it gives your camera this specific ability. The F55 still has a bunch of features um, that you actually probably would like. So it has the global shutter, a completely different sensor with a global shutter, um, and a bunch of other different sort of imaging capabilities that actually make a big difference. But if you just need XAVC 4K recording, this is pretty awesome, and it's going to be interesting to see if Sony responds Um, aggressively by, you know, in their next firmware update, disabling this ability, or if they sort of say, yeah, okay, and just make it available to everyone.
1: Yeah, that's going to be a hard
0: line to walk.
1: Because, I mean, I understand why they did it. Like, you know, this this coming out in the long term isn't going to help anybody. Because... I mean, this is how you run a business. Like the whole point of, you know, we had a number of talks with EditReady and adding MXF and how we were going to price things. Because the the responsible thing to do as a business owner is to figure out how to make people who want more from you to pay more so that you can offer a more affordable product to people who don't need all of the features. Right? Yeah. And, you know, this this idea like, well, you know, but it doesn't cost them anything to edit. Well, it does. I mean, it costs them money to develop the functionality and to create the hardware. The fact that they can't mark it up enough for everyone, like, isn't a bad thing, per se. I mean, you know, product differentiation is a hard thing to do, especially, you know, I mean... You could certainly argue that Sony has too many SKUs. Um, Yeah, definitely with their like global product thing, their like PAL versus NTSC and all that stuff. Um, But you know, I don't know what better solution they have.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would I would think that their best option from here is to release a paid upgrade that says like for eight thousand dollars, turn your or whatever turn your F5 into you know add 4K recording to your F5 um and now you get warranty support and everything else and then you know make their service centers reject hacked F5s
1: right i mean you got to assume they they made a major mistake here by not naming the full one the F555 so they could ship this as the F55 in the middle what recently i'm like what do you what do you call the one halfway between a five and a fifty five An f yeah. yeah, they already sell one of those, and it's a completely different exactly <laughs> so they had to keep with the five, so they should have had the f five and the f five fifty five and then this hybrid in the middle could be the f fifty five
0: huh
1: Fair one right. less five a lot less features
0: um yeah, but it'll be interesting to see what they do with this i mean and there's also i guess a um, uh, an ethical Issue here potentially. Um, you know, if you had, um, you know, software that had a pro unlock key and you hacked the software to give yourself the pro features, you know, most people would say that's a form of stealing, right? Right. I mean, it's piracy or whatever. Um, somehow, you know, people think of this differently when it's hardware. And I think I myself would probably think of it different when it's hardware, but, um, There is a question there as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's tough when you... I mean, this is a problem when anytime you do these sort of hardware or software unlocks, like, you know, our moral code seems to say, like, I get the thing you ship me. Yeah. No matter what the bits are that I change on the inside. You know, like, if you buy something and you make it better... That's totally cool. If, you know, it's like if someone sends you a car and they've got, you know, they did something to keep it from going really fast and you change that, like, that's within your rights. So it's hard to say, like, oh, somebody sent me this camera, but they didn't let it go as fast as it could. And so I changed it. Um, it's just, yeah, we don't have the. I don't know, something about the the problem.
0: Right. And it's, and it's that trade off because th- especially in the high end f- space, a lot of gears like this, where you buy it and then you pay for unlock keys to add features. Right. Um, and it has to
1: be, I mean, yeah, because there's not a large enough market to develop independent products for each of them.
0: Right. And as a user, at least not you know, at a price point you would want, like, and even if it's software changes, like as a user, I don't want to have to uh, ship my device back for you to flash new firmware on. I just want to punch in a key. Um, right, which is awesome, but you don't want me to, you know, guess what the key is or or whatever. Um
1: Right. I mean, I guess we're going to have to go back to flash and firmware, which is probably fine as we get to this like internet of things thing.
0: Right, and that maybe the answer is that over time they, you know, add some cryptography stuff and then push the updates out via the web. Yeah. Um Yeah, anyways, keep an eye out for Sony's response if anything. Um There's also I think the the good flip side of this is that of a, a lot of the people who own F5s aren't probably using them in environments where taking the risk of using them outside of spec is not worth it like if you you know ha- have one of these and something goes wrong on a shoot even if it's not related at all to making this change now you've got you know a problem on your hands because you can't point back yep. to Sony and say this camera screwed up because they're going to say no you hacked your camera
1: right and how many of these are in the rental market yeah where the whole point is you buy the more expensive cameras you can rent it for more money like i you know i can't imagine too many people having the you know the balls to it like rent the camera as a hacked camera right like i'm gonna rent this to you i'm gonna charge you the f55 rate because it can do 4k Yeah, so I don't think it's going to make a lot of waves.
0: I, I don't think so either. Um, I think 10 years ago it would have when um, there were less good options in the lower range and everyone was looking to save money. But I think now if you're up to the point of buying an F5, which they retail for what dollars or $15,000, you know, at that point your decision between an F5 and an F55 was probably not driven by price. Well, and they chose the F5
1: because you didn't need 4K because there exactly. are other twelve thousand dollar 4K cameras. Exactly. You did. You wanted an ENG camera, right? You didn't, and buy you it. wanted it for the stability.
0: Yeah, yeah. You didn't buy it because it was the you know, it was all you could afford. You had a ton of options, right? Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I think. But ten years ago, that would have been really different. Back when we were like making the Andromeda hack for your DVX one hundred, <laughs> um, you know, there weren't good options, and anything that could get you more out of the gear you had was worth it. So. Yeah. I guess that's more like fifteen years ago now. But yeah. God, we're old. No, that was 10 years ago. Yeah. 10, 12, yeah. Because that was
1: like first NAB time. Yeah. That was like launch of Scope Box. Anywho. So uh what's chatter? My chatter is about IKEA. They're making waves this week because they're going back to Futura for their font. No I'm kidding. (laughs) They should though. That was a horrible mistake Redon is not a print font.
0: Agreed. God,
1: come on, Ikea. Um, no, I, they put out, I don't know, a couple articles came out this week about how they do product photography, which is by not having products and not doing photography, (laughs) which seems pretty awesome because those things are a pain in the ass to set up. So I don't blame them for not wanting to do that. Um, Yeah, so they are doing the majority, it sounds like now, of their catalog photography and styling in 3D. They're just using, you know, 3D renderings of all their stuff in 3D houses, which makes total sense. I mean, you have so much more control over lighting and everything else, and um, it, you know, looks really nice. Um,
0: yeah I mean we're definitely at the point with 3D where if you don't need people in it you can make an indistinguishable rendering um, especially with the types of lighting they need and all of that
1: oh yeah I mean the types of lighting they need and the types of materials and not worrying about you know you have windows and not having to worry about weather outside and not having to worry about you know one of the biggest problems with these setups like for that kind of photography is you limit it in your staging because there are walls behind you. Like, you know, kitchens tend to be only so big and bathrooms are a big pain in the ass. And this, they just, like, knock out the back wall. Yeah. Um, and what I thought was cool is they've actually created some extensions to... I think they're using 3D Studio Max. Yep. Um, basically so that the stylist can just go in and throw stuff down and it deals with all the, like... Um, It, like, uses gravity to pull everything down to the nearest surface and then sets it on it so you don't have to worry about, like, the gaps between the granite countertop and the bowl of fruit. Mm -hmm. So they just go in and they go, bowl of fruit, and the thing goes plunk. Right, you can treat it more like a high-level environment. Like styling a, yeah, like styling a photo shoot. Yeah. Thought it it was cool.
0: It's really, I mean, and they have some samples in the article we'll link to, um, or you can just look at your IKEA catalog. It's, you know. You've always had really nice, like, ray trace looking stuff yeah but you would be hard pressed to say this wasn't product you know real photography well then you know it says they have an anecdote in the article
1: where they when they were doing it at first someone came back to them and said these things look like shit stop doing it look at these three photos and they were like those were all photography (laughs) (laughs) so that's when they switched
0: yeah um yeah cool stuff Um, my chatter this week is an article about, uh, a bunch of satellite imagery that's been recovered. Um, so this is another in the long line of sort of recent stories of people recovering data from the early space program and and elsewhere. Um, so we have 250,000 images that, um, came off of the Nimbus 1 and a series of uh weather satellites that followed after that that were thought lost and have been recovered by a project that's gone back through a warehouse and recovered a bunch of video and images and you know rebuilt all the technology necessary to read them um and in addition to be interest, being interesting for historical purposes they've actually been able to use uh the imaging of the arctic and antarctic to look at uh the way the ice sheet has shrunk under global warming so this provides some of our earliest uh our our, our earliest uh, space imagery uh, especially with um tracking over seasons of the uh polar arctic uh, ice sheets so uh very cool to be able to recover this data
1: yeah they looked really neat
0: so was it, it
1: wasn't an issue of like, oh, we have these data, we don't have the technology to read anymore. Like it was also, they just like didn't think they had the tapes anymore, right? Right, exactly. Okay. Because there was the one a couple of years ago where they had all the tapes and they were like, well, we don't have a player anymore and the tapes are very old and we yeah. don't think we can unspool them. Those are always fun. Yep.
0: So uh, that's all we got.
1: Okay. Next week, hopefully soon. MXF. Yes, yeah, soon. Keep an eye out for it. Good. Very answer. soon. Um, and also iWatches. Yeah, less and less exciting. Okay. MXF. Yeah. Okay. Bye.